This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. I was at a brewer's conference when I was given this, co- this this discussion and asked around the room how many people are interested in making non-alcoholic beer this year and everybody put their hand up. There's definitely an interest in making it and there's this belief that you know it's currently at 2% and it's growing to 5% and you know it's going to be at 10%. This week on the show, there are lots of different approaches to producing non-alcoholic beer. We discuss the trade-offs of each method with a Master Brewers member who is producing multiple non-alcoholic brands via different methods. Hi, my name is Justin McKellar, and I'm the Brewmaster and General Manager at Equals Brewing Company in London, Ontario. Non-alcoholic beer has become increasingly popular in recent years. Why is that? A lot of the um, brewers and analysts in North America are really looking at Europe in the non-alcoholic beer consumption in Europe uh, and seeing levels around five to 10% of the overall beer consumption. Whereas in, you know, North America, it's still, you know, under 2%. So they see that there's opportunity for growth and they really see that the uh, growth is really people moving away from beer, moving towards a better for you segment um, and seeing that that shifting consumer uh, preference. So um, non-alcoholic beer segment and the low and not no alcohol beer has been growing at a, at a very fast pace. It's still a pretty small percentage of the overall beer market, but it is growing. And in a market where the overall beer volume is flat or in decline, any segment within that market that's growing or doubling, there's a lot of interest in. So that's why you see a lot of brewers in North America really looking to capture part of this new and exciting uh, part of the market. There are quite a few different approaches to producing non-alcoholic beer, and we're going to be talking about all of them, but they pretty much land in one of two buckets. Talk about that. Yeah, so really there's you know two methods. There are two main, main buckets to uh, remove alcohol from beer or have beer without alcohol. So you can either brew a beer uh, normally or, or in a somewhat traditional method and then remove the alcohol afterwards. Or you can choose a method that you're essentially brewing the beer, but you're not creating the alcohol in the first place. So you have those two two big buckets. And then within those buckets, we can kind of go through a few of those different uh, methods. Paint us a picture of non-alcoholic wort. How is it different from typical wort? Yeah, I think the, the big thing with non-alcoholic wort, no matter what method you're choosing, you're likely going to want to not have as much fermentables in it. So really that, uh, as everyone listening to the podcast likely knows is, you know, the mash profile and mash regime is going to have the the biggest impact on the amount of fermentables in your wort. So, um, you know, a typical non-alcoholic beer, whether it's through a 
a arrested fermentation or a alcohol removal, you know, you'd see a very high uh, mash temperature um, outside of your optimal limits as high as 75 degrees centigrade um, or 100 and you know, 60, 168 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, that's, that's the, the fermentability part. And then you, you see a wide range as well of starting gravity, right? So if you look at dropping your fermentability low, and then you can uh, not have as much total uh, fermentables as well by having a lower original gravity. Um, so that if you have a an RDF of a real degree of fermentation of, you know, 30% and you only have a original gravity of, of three to, to four degrees Plato, you know, you only have a potential alcohol of say around one, 1%. So, um, versus a standard wart, you know, of around 70, uh, a 70 or 72 RDF, um, at 12 Plato, you know, you're obviously going to, going to be, you know, close to, to 5% of, of potential alcohol that you can, can get there. So you have a lot more, um, uh, you know, fermentables that are, are waiting to turn that into alcohol, which is either going to mean that you have to, you're going to have a harder job stopping or arresting that fermentation, and it's going to have a much larger chance of blowing through. And then you're going to have a lot uh, more residual sugars left. Or on the other hand, you're just going to have a lot more work to remove that alcohol and a lot more alcohol to remove um, downstream. Okay, let's go through the methods in that first bucket. Let's hear about thermal removal. Yeah, I think um, a thermal removal, when I first uh, came across this, I thought it was kind of a joke, but it, w- it was serious. And there's there's commercial examples of this, um, of essentially just thermal removal. So you have ethanol is the, the you know, that's, that's your alcohol. Its boiling point is 78 degrees at, at standard atmospheric temperature and pre- pressure. Um, so you know, the easiest way to get rid of that alcohol without any capital is to put the beer back into your kettle. And, you know, it takes about three hours and you can boil it for three hours and uh, remove the alcohol and then cool it back into a bright. And, you know, you got a um, a pretty, pretty high level of oxidative uh, byproducts there, but it is a a fast and uh, relatively inexpensive way to uh, remove the alcohol. The Probably one of the using a similar the using the evaporation kind of technology. Probably the the, the biggest uh, commercial example is uh, thin film or falling film evaporation. So similar to boiling it in a kettle, you're just not boiling it at 78. You're boiling it at 42 degrees because you pass it through a packed column under vacuum conditions, and then the boiling point reduces to 42 degrees. So you don't have to treat it. You don't have to heat it up as much. Um, you can actually heat it only to 42. Um, the ethanol the ethanol evaporates off, and then you uh, cool it down after. So that one is, uh, as I say, a lot of the uh, large European brewers use this use this technology. There's a lot of uh, you know uh, different suppliers that have slightly different techniques uh, in, in terms of their their designs. Um, Alpha Laval, GEA, um, API, Schmidt Breton. All, all have it. Centec, all have examples of these, uh, this, this technology or similar technology. Um, it's, it's just very costly in terms of the, the upfront capital for the equipment itself, um, and you kind of pull off a lot of the aroma compounds. Now, those aroma compounds can get uh, added back in uh, downstream um, if you're okay going to 0.5 percent. But the other good thing about this uh, technology, uh, under the vacuum method, you can get down to 0.0 percent, um, and uh, you know you can get a very, a very good flavor match off of this. So a lot of the commercial examples of the macro non-alk uh, in European brands would uh, have uh, this um, uh, technology being employed to make it. Yeah, I was going to ask if you could list any commercial examples of that. Do you know any offhand? Well. Um, so anything that, that's at zero zero, um, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that it's using uh, this technology. So um, Heineken Heineken zero zero. I don't know what uh, what vendor they have, uh, but we've I've talked with API Schmidt Breton, um, and so I know um, Klaus Tower 
um, is uh, API uses API Schmidt Breton uh, the, the their uh, vacuum distillation unit. And then there's some examples out of the U.S. that would use uh, the API unit, and I think they're selling they were selling more um, in the lead up to the to the cannabis uh, infused market and the build up into that. So um, companies like Two Roots out of out of California um, would be employing a, a similar technology. Okay. Um, any other pros or cons you want to discuss in regards to the thermal methods? I think on the, yeah, the thermal method, like on top of the capital cost for the actual equipment, you got to think, you know, if you're putting it into your brewery, you've got to now, whatever the throughput of this unit is, whether it's five hex an hour, 10 hex an hour, 20 hex an hour, you have to heat that up to 40 degrees in line, which is usually going to be coming out of a fermenter at, at you know, at post post cool, so from zero to forty. Um, so that's quite a lot of uh, you know heating capacity. So for us, it would have meant a boiler upgrade. And then uh, on the on the backside of it, even though you're going to do some uh, heat exchange to to try to um, optimize the heat transfer, um, you you have to cool it back down. So so it's a huge uh, um, glycol. Uh, con- consumption as well. So you, you think about that plus the electricity load. It was going to be, you know, an additional um, 60, 70 tons of uh, of uh, refrigeration capacity for us. Um, yeah, it's uh, no joke. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's pretty massive, um, but you know, it can make a it can make a really really great tasting non alcoholic lager. Um, the one the one question that I had was um, at that temperature in terms of a you know a, a craftier you know uh, more hop forward you know nice late hop what you know what does it do to the to the hop aroma and i never uh i hadn't haven't been able to find an example of of a of of one uh that i know that was made on a on a, a vacuum distillation unit that that i've uh, been happy with the, the the hop quality, so that was another concern before kind of going into to this technology is what that temperature would do uh, in the evaporation, what it would do to the uh, to the aroma of the uh, of kind of more hop forward um, pale ales and IPAs. All right, next up in that same first bucket, uh, reverse osmosis. We hear a lot about RO water, but how does it work for beer? Yeah, it's uh, it's really very similar in in terms of beer. So um, when you think about RO, um, if you, if you think about it just as a filter, um, and it's just got very very uh, small pores. So um, when we look at what we're doing with RO water, is we're trying to allow water to pass through, but we don't want any of the um, other uh, components of that water to come through. We only we we just want uh, essentially the H two O molecules to pass across. And and for for beer, you've got um, RO, and there's even some some technologies that you know uh, one layer above RO um, from a from a membrane porosity would be you know nanofiltration. So I think RO is you know, not point zero one micron or zero zero one, and then one tenth, like if one uh, order of magnitude um, larger in pore size, you'd be in the nanofiltration range. And both use the same method, where you have an applied pressure of beer kind of passing across this membrane, and only water and ethanol are able to pass across so you kind of retain all of the the larger molecular weight compounds on the on the beer side whereas the the semi-permeal membrane is is selectively only allowing the water and ethanol to uh, pass across it so you have the retentate which is going to be your beer that is just recirculating across this membrane and the essentially ethanol and water you have essentially clear liquid coming across the membrane and uh being essentially your 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 waste so your permeate for uh, through the ro beer process um would be you know your waste but it's also you know in these days it's what people would be using to make uh to make a great tasting seltzer so um it's not only water and ethanol you, you do pass some other similar uh, molecular weight size compounds it isn't entirely uh flavorless but it is uh very close and um yeah that's that's in general the you know two minute explanation of of how 
how RL works, um, and it can be done. Uh, it's a batch uh, method. It's not a it's not a kind of straight through method. So essentially, you have beer in a tank recirculating through uh, a set of RL filters, and it's like a cross flow uh, filtration system. And the permeate is your water and ethanol, and then you have your beer, which you know, slowly essentially gets concentrated and then you have to dilute that back with water to make it back up to its, its, uh, its, uh, concentration. And essentially you do that twice and then you end up with your beer at 0.5%. Very good. I was going to ask about the recovered alcohol and how that could be utilized. I was wondering if, if, if seltzer might be the answer. Um, what, what was it before the seltzer craze? What did they do with it before then? Yeah, I mean, it, the the one thing to, to remember if you're if you are looking at this and you're and you're thinking either for making seltzer or for making non-alcoholic beer um, is is one the water usage is high and then the waste the water and ethanol you, you can't just put water and ethanol down the drain and uh, especially if you know without the city saying hey you know it's it's full, really high in BOD uh, water and ethanol so you want to capture that in either you know a distillery would love to have that water and ethanol um, because it's, it's 5%. It's a free feedstock to, to supplement their, their distillation. So that would be a, uh, a great, um, you know, uh, way to kind of sh- share some, some waste, keep it out of the drain, keep the uh, wastewater treatment plants happy and keep uh, a, just a good way to, you know, recover some of the, uh, the byproducts of the process and have it used to, for, for another uh, business. There could be some cost offsets there. By the time you you work transport in, it, it might be a wash, but at least you won't be paying the surcharges to your municipality for uh, putting putting it down the drain. And how close does this method get to uh, normal beer flavor? I'm assuming very, right? Yeah. I mean, this one I've, uh, you know, similar, I, I've tried a couple. So I've uh, out of Central City Brewing, so Gary Lowen and uh, Surrey, BC, um, they they have a, a GEA unit, and also I, can, I think I can say it now because I, I saw some promotional material posted. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if if that wasn't posted, I may not uh, uh, have have given the shout out. But uh, but you know, I, I spoke with Gary about their their unit that they had out there and got to try their their street legal series and was really impressed with the they have a, a pilsner and a uh, and an IPA and both were were excellent uh examples of non-alcoholic beer um and the there's still a a body impact i mean there's just there is something about um the interaction the flavor interaction with ethanol and all the other flavors where alcohol is that hook that like latches on to other flavors like alcohol is used to to extract flavors out of other compounds so when you remove the alcohol out of that matrix it's very difficult to make it taste exactly the same especially when you start talking about products that have slightly more body like ipas and and uh and darker beers so lagers are a bit easier to to replicate um generally you'll see uh some level of body addition added back in um you know there's ingredient panels on every on every beer so i encourage everybody to if you wonder what's in people's beer they you know they have to put it on the ingredients so you can see a lot of the non-alcoholic beers you'll see a either a uh, a sugar addition or a or a liquid uh, uh, liquid malt extract addition, um, which which is really you know meant to add some body back into that beer after the alcohol is removed, um, because that's a, that's the biggest um, kind of up uphill battle. And then the aroma the aroma would be the other one on the on the IPAs. And um, I've heard of people doing things like uh, dry hopping post uh, post alcohol removal, um, and I don't know about I can't comment from experience on the effects of dry hopping pre-alcohol removal and the that that uh, that split. So going back to what you were saying about the alcohol really being the hook, is there is there a pretty clear advantage for the beers that are a half a percent versus the ones that are zero in terms of flavor? Yeah, I mean you'll you'll also see on on certain ones that are zero, you'll actually see. Um, flavors added back to, um, and again, you can look at the panel and, and, and see that, um, that if there's flavoring added, added in, so there, it, it can be 
it, it can be masked or it can be added back. Uh, and that's the, the benefit of, of being at 0.5 is to get to zero, you're going to have to pull out more flavor because with the alcohol removal to get to zero, zero, you're pulling off the, the higher alcohols, you're pulling off uh, the esters as well, because they've got uh, such similar boiling points. And then you can add those back in, but when you add them back in, you add a little bit of the ethanol back because the separation isn't, isn't um, so distinct that you can selectively say, okay, I want to, I want to add my isoamyl acetate back in, but you could after the fact, you know, have a flavoring that's that that's high in uh, in you know in a beer ester profile and and add that back. And you're definitely not going to get to zero zero with the membrane method, right? Um, I've heard it claimed. I just think that you you use an you would use an insane amount of water. So as it stands, the downside to RO is that you're using a lot of water, and then the effluent call it risk, right? So um, if I have a five percent beer. My to get um, to to process that I would, you know, so if I have a hundred hectoliters of five percent beer, I would process uh, seventy five hectoliters of that at five percent, and that seventy five hectoliters would be five percent essentially alcohol and water that would have to go somewhere. Then I'm I left with twenty five hectoliters at five percent. Dilute that back up to a hundred percent. Now I have a hundred hectoliters at approximately whatever that is i think it's something like uh you know we'll call it to 1.8% and then i got to dealk that again before i dilute it so now i'm dealking the one in 0.8% which is got to go down the drain um because it's kind of not valuable to, to to anybody at that point or you can you know still divert it and and treat it um so that's you you end up using quite a bit of water even to get to 0.5. So to get to 0.0, you would have to, you know, use double. Do it again. You have to do it one more time. And it's just, yeah, the the law of uh, limiting returns there. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Coming up. Today's day and age, if you have a if you have a small brewery, you'd like to make a, a non-alcoholic beer, but you don't want to spend another five hundred thousand dollars on on equipment to be able to do it. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewery Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to home brewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. Master Brewer's calendar is still a hot mess due to COVID-19. Definitely check out the calendar of events at MBAA.com for the latest information. Here are some events that remain on the calendar. There's quite a few webinars, including Beer Recovery from Hoppy Tank Bottoms Using a Decanter Centrifuge, May 14th. Putting Brewing Water into Perspective with John Palmer, May 16th. Enzymes and Enzyme Application in Brewing, May 19th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets online May 21st. 
District New England has a webinar on Fike Yeast May 22nd. Looking beyond the pandemic, proactive measures towards business interruptions May 26th. Creating a safe environment for brewery tours June 9th. And finally, compliance testing for state-level cannabis markets on June 23rd. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years, and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. Okay, let's dive into bucket number two, which is to limit alcohol production in the first place. Talk about arrested fermentation. Yeah, so I mean, the other, uh, another way and uh, a very low capital way to uh, to, to create a non-alcoholic beer is to just um, use an arrested uh, fermentation method. So you have the low fermentable wort, uh, which you know is created through your mashing profile. You know pH. pH. You can also use uh, your uh, through selection of uh, your malts, and you can do it through fermentation temperature, having a much lower fermentation temperature. And then it's really about just monitoring and then stopping that fermentation uh, before you get to 0.5%. Uh, percent. So um, it's very difficult to kind of i would say it's very difficult to do you just have to monitor it very closely because it's very easy to overshoot and then yeah, as it does you, sound difficult I've, I've never really you know you spend a lot of time thinking about how to keep fermentations you know going not how to stop them yeah <laughs> as a brewer yeah so it's kind of you're monitoring every couple hours and it's generally you know 24 to 48 hours uh before it's done and then um even when you put it on cool you know, you want to cool it as, as low as possible, but, you know, you don't really want your, your fermenter set to zero or, or minus one like you would normally crash your, your fermenters to because you start freezing it up because there's no alcohol in there. So the, 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 the freeze point's a lot lower. So, you know, we've been setting fermenters to two degrees and then we'll see um, even at two degrees, it's, if you let it sit for four days, you'll slowly see that drift continue. So you got to get the the beer off of the um, off the yeast. So through filtration or a or a centrifuge, try to get um, the as much of that yeast out as possible to limit the kind of overshoot of the fermentation. And that's that's uh, you know a big challenge if you're. And how much constrained. how much yeast do you need to get out? Can you get? I mean, do you have to get every single cell out of there? Uh, no, not generally. I mean, as long as you're under, you know, half a million to a million cells, um, you're, you're going to be okay. You're not going to, you know, you may drift if you leave it in there for a month, but, uh, you know, you should be good for, you know, four to five days. Um, no problem. All right. So I guess, uh, um, this, this method, you know, you're going to end up with just, you know, a very wordy tasting flavor, right? Yeah. Yeah, the uh, that's the, the the downside for for the arrested fermentation is definitely the the flavor. I mean, this is the struggle with non-alcoholic beers uh, for years in North America, or for my my take on it anyway, is that they've always tasted awful, and a lot of it is because you know they, they were, it was arrested fermentation, it was warty, a lot of sulfur, H two S. Um, and it was just sweet, kind of just undrinkable. Um, and so there's 
I say a long hangover of people hearing about non-alcoholic beer and being like, Oh, why would you do that? Why would you expose yourself to that? And, and unfortunately it comes from, um, you know, a lot of, uh, the arrested uh, fermentation kind of recipes and brands that uh, use this uh, back, um, you know, in the eighties and nineties as the other methods were being kind of developed and, um, uh, spread out throughout the brewing world. So um, it is a tough one to do a light tasting, uh, a lager on um, what it, to do a, a darker beer that's a bit more roasted in character where the, you know, stout porter, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit easier to, to kind of hit a, a recipe that's um, doesn't taste um, too far off, but from a lager standpoint, it is a difficult one to, to get the balance right. How about, um, are there any other off flavors that typically come from shutting down that, f- that fermentation pr- prematurely? Yeah. I mean, what we found, so you gotta, you gotta be, uh, cognizant of diacetyl, um, and, and diacetyl precursor, um, and the, uh, H2S is the two big ones that, that, that we've seen, um, you know, it, and it really comes down to just, you know, yeast selection, temperature, and then making sure that you're on top of the, uh, you know, pitch rate. And then you're on top of ensuring that you, you don't let it get started too, too vigorously. Okay. How about some commercial examples for this, uh, this method that people might be familiar with? Um, the, the, the example that, that, uh, that I give from, from back in the, in the day would be, you know, the Molson Excel from, you know, pre, pre 2000, pre 2005 would have been an arrested fermentation, uh, method. Um, I don't know what it is today if it's, if it's changed, but that's the, the example that I, that I have, um, of, of arrested fermentation. And then there's a lot of the, the, uh, new, um, brands, a lot of the craft brewers who are launching brands, um, that don't have the capital would be, uh, using arrested fermentation. Um, so, um, I believe, uh, Partake would have arrested fermentation. It was a, you know, uh, a brand that's had a, a tremendous amount of success, a wide number of uh, brands across uh, that uh, SKUs that they've launched in across North America. Um, and then I've been looking at some of the breweries out of the U S uh, trying to understand which, which would employ um, the, the capital intensive techniques and which ones would employ their arrested fermentation. And it's uh, it, it seems to be um, difficult to, to, to lock down, but I think we're seeing a lot more. And I would say this would be currently the most popular method uh, because it's the easiest. Um, the big challenge on this method is, you know, even more so than than the alcohol removal methods is is pasteurization. Um, yeah. So I mean, you you have uh, fermentables remaining in your container. And if you don't pasteurize, then, you know, you're going to see exploding cans. So. Yeah. We'll get into pasteurization here in a few minutes, but there's a, another method focused on yeast. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, outside of, uh, the stopping of fermentation would be, you know, picking a yeast strain that doesn't ferment maltose. So as most Brewers would know maltose makes up fifty to sixty percent of the carbohydrate profile of of the wort. So there are certain strains of yeast and bacteria that don't ferment maltose and maltotriose. And so essentially, you could have a a four or five plate of wort and not and, and pitch a yeast strain in it, but half of it's not going to be fermentable because it doesn't consume uh, maltose. So these strains. So there's um, uh, Piscia cluveri, um, and then uh, Saccharomyces ludwigii would be one of the oldest and most most used strains. Um, but that one has had uh, they've been tough to on the on the sensory side on the ludwigii strains. And then uh, Fermentus just came out with one. It's a a, a Sach cervicia strain, Chevalieri kind of uh, variant. Uh, but that's the Saphiel Elio one which we've done some trials on. Um, and you know what, it was, uh, we, we did three different trials uh, on that yeast and it was okay. Um, it performed well, uh, after we roused, uh, the tank, <laughs> so the tank, the tank got roused after and we, and it continued to, to ferment. So it still went a bit 
over uh, the 0.5, uh, but we did we did find a, a slight uh, phenolic and earthy note off of it, so it can be worked into certain uh, certain uh, styles. But for the the, the clean uh, uh, flavor that we were looking for, and the, we were looking at kind of a Lagerdale um, recipe, you know, Kolsch style, and it was uh, not uh, it wasn't really conducive to to that that clean um, yeast character. So like I say, we there there could be temperatures and there could be pitch rates and a lot of different things to uh, in mash profiles to 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 work with that strain, but uh, but it is commercially available now out there. Um, and the other one would be near, um, which is the Pischia strain. So that's out of Christian Hansen, a, a Danish company, commercially available, but in pretty macro quantities. I think the minimum pitch you can get for that is 400 barrels. So. All right. So it sounds like some of those strains. Um, could could work just standalone and some of them you might sort of have to have a hybrid process with that unique yeast strain as well as sort of perhaps an arrested fermentation yeah i think uh yeah definitely you know ensuring that you have you know it's all about managing the fermentability so each of those whatever strain maltose negative strain you you select it, you know you're going to have a certain amount of uh fermentation uh, potential, so it's just managing your your wort carb- carbohydrate profile and your recipe to ensure that the the potential isn't there to go over 0.5, and if it is, you may need to stop it stop it short slightly. What is all that? Uh, what is all that unfermented maltose taste like in the beer? Um, really good question. Uh, the ones that I have tasted, I can't say that. Um, I noticed anything like it's like the sweetness of, of maltose, like on a, on a, you know, sweetness indicator is, is a lot lower than, than dextrose or obviously fructose, I think is the, the highest. So um, I think it is sweet, carries a little bit of body, but I don't, I, I, I can't say that I've tasted a, you know, side by side of, you know, here is 10 grams per liter of maltose and 10 grams per liter of, of glucose or sucrose and, and compared the, uh, the two. Okay. Then there's a few other more obscure approaches like cold contact fermentation. Talk about that method as well as any others you want to mention. Yeah, I think um, the other other methods, I think the thing that's uh, really interesting about about beer and research and in the whole like scientific side of, of beer is, you know, there's still a lot of room to have a great tasting non-alcoholic beer that people say hey you know what this is this is uh, um this is as good or better than a than a normal normal tasting beer i think the lagers are and and the kind of you know more uh you know uh, call it main main street uh you know varieties have been uh, uh have been nailed on the non-alc side but there's always interest in how to do it better uh faster cheaper without any sort of uh, capital um especially um you know in today's day and age if you have a you have a small brewery you'd like to make a, a non-alcoholic beer but you don't want to spend another five hundred thousand dollars on on equipment to be able to do it so people are trying new things every day right um doing cold mashes so essentially to not not trying to go over the the uh, mash profiles you go under the mash profile and you go um you just you just don't convert any of the starch and then you put it through the fermentation and see what that what that uh, en- ends up like so um people are trying new things all the time cold contact fermentation is, is one that you know has been around for a long time as well i don't know of any commercial examples but um, essentially it's it uses immobilized yeast um, and then has a, a a shorter contact time with it and it just re- requires the the reduction of the wort aroma compounds which is really the the aldehydes in the wort and it's that 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 kind of warty aroma right and you know throughout fermentation those aldehydes get reduced and eventually you know metabolized into uh um into esters and higher alcohols and that's uh you know that's the the reduction of the wort compounds and then the production the yeast production of the metabolic byproducts of its uh, uh the esters is really the what what we end up with after fermentation and it's how do we short circuit that so there's other techniques that look at um you know just 
yeast mutants that don't have the alcohol dehydrogenase gene. So, you know, you look at the TCA cycle or the Krebs cycle and it's like, you know, through that, you know, you remember glycolysis and then, you know, you have alcohol dehydrogenase that's taken, you know, uh, pyruvate over, you know, and it just doesn't, it doesn't do that. So you don't create ethanol uh, it's because it has a, a mutation in the alcohol dehydrogenase gene now there's other things that come along with that um, and again no com- commercial examples but there's a lot of interest in finding what different ways uh to to make non-alcoholic beer because as i mentioned there isn't a um a aside from the capital intensive techniques there's a lot of interest in in, in doing it using biology and, and continuing down the approach of maltose negative strains I wonder if there's any like enzymatic approaches where you just try to like, you know, you go ahead and make the alcohol, but then you, you, you somehow convert it into something else. There's got to be somebody working on something like that. <laughs> I, that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if it doesn't exist yet, then you know, maybe this podcast, someone will, uh, someone will take that idea and run with it. Cause like I say, I think there is uh, a, a continued interest in it. Um, the, the one, the, there's definitely an interest in making it. And there's this belief that people are, that, that it, you know, it's currently at 2% and it's growing to 5% and, you know, it's going to be at 10%. Um, you know, I was at a brewer's conference when I was given this, this, this discussion and asked around the room, how many people are interested in making non-alcoholic beer this year? And everybody put their hand up. And then it's like, how many people are interested in drinking non-alcoholic beer this year? And nobody put their hand up. Right. So, (laughs) you know, it was just crickets. So, it, it is one of those conundrums where it's like you know you're trying to you're trying to chase the uh, the next the next thing and even though you're not sure that you're interested in it um, so there is uh, definitely a a, um, a a lot of people in the industry as well who say, who don't who don't prescribe to it they're like I'm I'm what's the point of of I, I came into to 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 a brewery to make non-alcoholic beer or to make beer and beer has alcohol and that's that's why I enjoy it but I think there's a lot of people in the you know in the in the world today that you know they want the community of 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 beer they like the romance of of a product that's that's brewed that's fermented that has the taste of beer you can enjoy it with friends you have the the sense of community but you just don't have the alcohol whether it's for um you know health reasons or you know they're giving up alcohol it it does provide a uh a, a choice and allows more people to enjoy beer. So it is, um, I, I do think that it's going to be, um, uh, something that's going to continue to grow. It's just not going to fill my fridge up. <laughs> yeah. I would say the folks that say, what's the point have never been married to a woman who's pregnant and is dying for a beer. Here <laughs> you got it. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a great point. I know also there seems to be um, increased interest from like an athletic standpoint, you know, in, in, in terms of like, you know, non-alcoholic beer being a great uh, drink uh, for replenishment after hard exercise uh, versus, uh, you know, a sports drink or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The whole isotonic kind of approach and better for you, and you know, <clears throat> and I think you'll see, see more brands specifically uh, market to that, you know. You know, there's there is already you know electrolytes and and vitamins and good recovery elements in in non-alcoholic beer, and then I think you're going to see that to just marketed a little bit more specifically. Athletic Brewing is you know a great example of you know a, a non-alcoholic a company that's strictly been non-alcoholic uh, uh, beer, and you know they've had massive massive growth. I think they've went through a, a serious uh, fundraising round, and you know. You know, over capacity expansion. You know, I don't, I don't know, don't know the guys uh, uh, there and the the crew that uh, that runs the place, but the beer is uh, is fantastic, and uh, yeah, they've seen a, a huge, huge following. So I think there'll be more like that. All right. Well, I know you want to talk about pasteurization because that's an important step that a lot of brewers avoid during regular beer production. And even if they are already pasteurizing their beer, that process might not be sufficient for non-alcoholic beer, right? Yeah, I think uh, the, the the note on pasteurization is, is really, really kind of important. Um, you know, I think brewers everywhere have heard the horror stories of 
you know, fruited beers, refermentation on the shelves, um, you know, diastatic yeast where you, you know, you think you don't have any fermentables left, but you get some diastatic contamination and you get, you know, exploding cans, exploding bottles. Like th- this, this sort of thing isn't for the faint of heart and it's, um, it can crush a brand. Um, it can make people sick. It can hurt, it can hurt the public. Um, you know, one of the uh, professors from VLB, when I was hearing him, him talk, he said there was, there's only been one example of, of a, of a death from a malt beverage. I think it was in, in Brazil um, that they could tie back to a, to a pathogen contamination. Um, so pasteurization is, is of, of critical importance, one from a refermentation standpoint, but also, you know, you don't have alcohol uh, in there to prevent pathogen growth. We have a lot of, um, you know, uh, belief and safety in uh, one just past history of pathogens not growing in beer. Uh, but you start, you, you remove one of the, the restrictions to the, to the growth. So you, you have to look at that to, and say, Hey, you know, now what can grow in my beer? So pasteurization is really important. Uh, you know, most. And so these beers have to be pasteurized to a, a further degree than standard beer, right? Yeah. So, you know, standard beer, you know, the presentation that I gave references um, a VLB textbook that really says um, it has much higher recommended ranges than what I've seen in in industry. Um, you know, in industry, I've seen you know anywhere from eight to fifteen PUs for kind of standard beer. Um, you know, forty for cider, um, and I've seen uh, non-alcoholic beer anywhere from ten to to forty PUs. I haven't seen the the VLB would have a recommendation of um, 80 to uh, 100. The one other thing, you know, on top of pasteurization, just from a food safety standpoint that uh, should mention, um, you know, pH is, is really important as well. So when you look at, you know, whether you have a HACCP plan in your brewery or a food safety plan, um, you know, Non-alcoholic beer is technically in a different category uh, of product, so you really have to look at your jurisdiction around around what you're producing. So in Canada, you have to have a different license to be uh, to be making non-alcoholic beer uh, with the uh, uh, CFIA. Um, so in the U.S., I think it's probably similar. Um, but you, and then with that, you know, you have you have different requirements around. Um, you know, ensuring that your product's food safe. Beer is food too, but non-alcoholic beer, you have a less of that less of that safety factor there. So, uh, pH is a, is another factor, risk factor. So, you know, it's accepted that you know a pH of under four point six would be considered an acidic beverage. So that should be a a uh, critical control point for your uh, non-alcoholic beer production, where you're ensuring that that you know, in your bright tank prior to package that you're under uh, pH of 4.6. And you can make that adjustment with, you know, citric, lactic, lactic or phosphoric. Um, generally try to start the fermentation a bit, a bit lower in pH too. You don't want to be, you know, five, you, you know, cause it's okay to not be in an ideal uh, starting wort pH for, for the yeast. Cause you essentially don't want the yeast to work if you're in a, if you're in that uh, um, arrested fermentation. So you would want to have, a uh, starting pH slightly under five and ensure that you're checking it in bright and making an adjustment to get it under 4.6. So you obviously produce non-alcoholic beer at your brewery. Uh, tell us about your process. What approach do you take? Yeah. So at equals, we are, uh, we're, we're a contract uh, manufacturer, so we don't have any of our own brands. So we've, uh, we really pride ourselves on making making product for others and, you know, trying to stay ahead of what was, what was, what we believed was going to be a trend was non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic beer. So we we started with, um, arrested fermentation. Uh, and so we've used, uh, that method. We've got about, uh, three customers right now where we have uh, recipes, uh, where we're running arrested fermentation. Uh, we also have membrane filtration, um, where we we make um, a lager that uh, we're hoping to launch uh, with a customer in the next two months. Uh, that's um, it, it is one of the best uh, non-alcoholic lagers that I've that I've that I've tasted, and it was one of the it was the second one that we did on the on the membrane filtration unit that we that we had. So um, we've had good feedback on it, and uh, really 
kind of happy that uh, we have a customer that's uh, excited to launch that um, in in they'll be launching uh, in Whole Foods uh, in North America. So the Neil Brothers is a a, a great uh, uh, company out of Toronto. So they'll be looking to launch uh, that non-alcoholic uh, lager of uh, three different kind of uh, extensions of uh, of products that uh, we'll be producing for them over the next couple months. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started making non-alcoholic beer? Yeah, I think the one the one lesson would be you know just arrested fermentation. Watch your temps, watch your temperatures, watch your pitch rates, and watch your alcohol. Check you know if you don't have twenty four hour coverage, just you know be ready to predict how quickly it's moving because once it's once it picks up it might be at you know it might have only dropped you know 0.2 or 0.3 play-doh but um those eight hours or 12 hours if you only have one shift on um can be enough to uh to 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 send it over the over the limit and once you kind of go over the limit it's tough to get back and you don't really want to be trying to dilute it because you know if you're at 0.65 and you want and you got to be under 0.5 you know that's a that's a pretty hefty dilution, and you're not going to want to uh, want you're not going to want to do that to your to your beer. So um, it's really about monitoring it and uh, you know controlling the temps, uh, your pitch rates, and then getting getting it off the yeast when you can. That was Justin McKellar here on the Master Brewers podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers members can download slides, audio, and even video on demand from the district presentations archive? More than 900 district presentations are available from the Meetings tab at mbaa.com. Look for a direct link to Justin's presentation in the show notes or type non-alcoholic into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. And here's a pro tip. Don't forget to log in first because district presentations only get returned in search results when you're logged in as a member. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? There's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference and is packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 